episode 303, the conflict between qualies for drug value and specific well-funded patient advocacy groups. Today, I speak with Anna Kaltenbach from the Drug Pricing Lab at Memorial Sloan Kettering. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. You know, back in the olden days when a foot of measurement was actually the measure of your own foot. So I might measure something and it's like 19 feet and then you measure the same exact thing and it's 38 feet because you have tiny feet. This is the analogy that kept running through my mind as I was talking with Anna Kaltenbach today about qualies to measure the value of drugs. In this metaphor, qualies are the ruler so that one foot of drug value is the same for everybody in all drugs. It's very civilized as a concept if you think about it. Quali, Q-A-L-Y, stands for Quality Adjusted Life Year. The goal of a quality is to figure out how much any given drug is worth to a society so that we, as a society, have a benchmark to evaluate the price of pharmaceutical products. Qualies are an apples-to-apples, or a foot-to-foot, way to compare the value of drugs for we, the people. I mean, is this drug amazing and we should all pay a lot for it? Or is the drug more expensive than the current standard of treatment and it doesn't confer any added benefit to patients? It'd be good to know that as a patient and as a payer and frankly, as a pharma company. Qualies offer a framework for level-headed discussions. It's complicated. Gonna take the risk of oversimplifying, but here's how I'd explain the three parts in a quality measurement, which combined measure pharmaceutical value. The first part is, if relevant, how much additional survival can be expected with this drug. So if it's an oncology drug, for example, how much longer will the patient live? The second part of a quality is how does the drug make the patient feel? So in an ideal world, survival is long and the patient feels super great. So, you know, some economists and scientists get together and they do some math and they come up with the sum of these first two factors. Then the third part of a quality calculation is the cold hard cash. How much is society willing to pay for this improvement in survival and quality of life? This last part will depend based on the society, i.e. the country and also the condition. Like, we're willing to pay a lot for a drug that helps blind people see. We might be not so willing to pay a whole lot for a drug that lowers blood pressure marginally, for example. My guest today is Anna Kaltenbach. She is a health economist and program director for the Drug Pricing Lab at Memorial Sloan Kettering. She knows a lot about qualies. Oh, one last thing. ICER, I-C-E-R, is the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. It is a independent and nonprofit organization who creates a lot of these quality assessments. Whether they succeed or not is something that is sometimes questioned, but the team over at ICER prides themselves in not working for pharma and not working for payers in an effort to be as impartial as possible. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Anna Kaltenbach, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hi, Stacey. Thank you for having me on. Well, I am very much looking forward to speaking with you. 
One of the aspects of drug pricing that you have been working on is this idea of a quali. What's a quali? Sure. Yeah. So the quali is a measure. And the reason we're talking about it today is because it's come under some controversy. But one of the things that's tough about the quali is people don't necessarily know how to think about it. So I'll just give you maybe a quick overview conceptually of how it works. So how do you feel when you're in perfect health? And then how do you feel when you're sick? Kind of less than 100%, right? So what the quality does is it takes two separate domains, so two separate parts of the human experience of health. It says, okay, if there's a new treatment out there, whether it be a drug or a surgery or anything else, we can look at it in two ways. We can see how much longer you live as a consequence of getting that treatment than you would otherwise. And we can also see how much better you feel. What the quality is really good at doing is it sort of takes gains in survival, then weights it by how good you're feeling during that survival. If the drug in question here is for something that is supposed to improve overall survival, for example, it's, it's, it's a combination of that. But then, you know, if you're alive but barely alive and in terrible pain and suffering, then you get lower marks on the quality of that experience. It's the treatment that confers that. So it's the treatment that is giving you that experience. You don't get marks. It's the treatment that gets the marks, right? So we're, we're not assessing an individual. We're assessing the treatment and the effect it has on the individual. So I'm assuming what you're doing is some kind of population study, though, because you'd have to take an average or... Right. The way that it works is it's developed from different surveys that were developed out of focus groups that identified what people care about in their health and their experience of health. And then it's been validated in different populations. And, and so what's come out of that is this large body of literature and scientific work that has built up into a relatively sound measure. And so that all comes from the input from people like you and me who experience health. We all do. Is that math done individually for each drug or is there some kind of baseline standard and it doesn't matter what the drug is, it's just like, does it achieve this level of happiness, for example, or, or relative improvement? That's a great question. I think it gets to the heart of some of the controversy around the quality, which is that people say it doesn't necessarily capture that. And I think that's a misreading of what it actually does. You know, for some drugs, and I'm going to give an example here of Luxterna, that's a drug to restore sight in patients who suffer from a form of genetically caused blindness. That drug doesn't necessarily improve your life expectancy. What that drug does is it improves quality of life. So a patient who has a form of congenital blindness that is treated with Luxterna, would, what you would see is a improvement in quality quality improvement driven by improved quality of life, improved experience. But your neighbor down the street who was being treated for a form of cancer with a new treatment, the study that went into doing that treatment, what they might have found was that it's the overall survival improvement that drives that quality improvement. Or perhaps it's even reduced side effects from treatment that improves that experience and translates to a quality improvement. So what the quality does really nicely and is that it gives credit for both things. So you're not sitting there comparing apples to oranges. Yeah. So if we are trying to do an apples to apples comparison, because at the end of the day, what the quality adds up to is a dollar amount. You know, like how much is this drug worth to drive the improvement that it drives? So I'm assuming that somebody has figured out that this much additional overall survival is equivalent to this much happiness. 
because you'd sort of have to if you're going to wind up with a result that you can compare to one another. The idea is that you know you're able to quantify in a very real way what people get as a result of taking this treatment. An overall experienced well-being of being treated with this product over that product or this procedure over that procedure. So in one drug, it might be ability to sit up. In another drug, it might be I can see. But if both of them confer a certain level of, of happiness, then you know both of them get a seven on the scale. Sure, exactly. Or uh, instead of a seven, what you're really getting is how much of 100% have you achieved? Got it. Interesting. It be better than 100%. But we can definitely improve on where we are. And that's the beauty of the quality is it tells us how much better we're doing. How does that turn into a dollar amount? How exactly we're translating, okay, we've got this increase in overall survival and this quality of life. So there's some machinations that go on in order to turn that into a 80%, you know, or, yep. or some number. Are we then as a society saying, okay, every additional 1% is worth $800? Like, you know, so that's an arbitrary figure that every country is figuring out for themselves. So it's not an arbitrary figure. What you're actually referring to is called willingness to pay. Willingness to pay is how much I'm willing to spend on an additional quality adjusted life year as a society. There have been studies done on how much people are willing to pay for an additional quality adjusted life year. That number tends to fall between fifty dollars and $150,000 per quality for most conditions you know, in some instances, we would be willing to pay much more money per quality if it's for a rare disease where there's no treatment options and patients really suffer, uh, you know, very bad health states for a long time. On the other hand, there are some disease areas where perhaps we're willing to pay less simply because it's a chronic disease. There's a lot of people who have it and there's a lot of treatment options out there. The bar might be different depending on disease state and how severe the, um, the experience is for patients. So there's effectively two kinds of surveys that are going on. There's one survey that talks about like, okay, here's the increase in quality of life. So you've got those instruments that are calculating that. Then you've got another set of instruments that are calculating, okay, well, what's the willingness to pay? And there's a different set of... Well, they're not totally different sets. They're, they relate to the same information, but the reality of it is that they come to two different pieces of information, right? One, you need to quantify how much improvement there is. And two, you need to be able to quantify how much you're willing to pay for the improvement. So on the one hand, we're asking patients, obviously, to get the improvements in quality of life and et cetera. You're looking at data to figure out the overall survival. Then you're querying payers and, you know, other people with pocketbooks, I'm assuming. Well, you also query, I mean, this is the idea is that on a societal level, you're not querying just payers. You're querying other people in the population. You're querying you and me. What we pay for drugs should be reflected in societal preference. The interesting thing, though, is that like if I'm a patient... And I want this drug and I'm not necessarily the one, I mean, it's my insurance that would be paying for it, not necessarily me. I mean, why wouldn't I say, well, I want this, so pay a million dollars for it. That's sort of at the core of the controversy that we have now. There are patient groups out there that are essentially saying that let's not focus on the quality measurement. Let's not focus on, on that. Just pay for it because it improves my life in a meaningful way. And the fear I have in that conversation is that it devalues what the quality can bring to these patient communities, which is, you know, an objective measure that really shows, okay, this is, this is an enormous improvement, or this is a substantial improvement, or this is not that great of an improvement, and you may not actually benefit from it in the ways that you anticipate you will. You know, there is a very difficult thing happening right now where patient groups are 
increasingly sort of pushing back on the use of the quality because it is associated with that that tension between here's what we're willing to pay and here's the price. The price is not a God-given number. It is one that comes that is a rational choice made by made by the manufacturer. I think the interesting thing about the patient groups that are pushing back against the qualies, and I'm not sure if this is true across the board, but at least it's true at a certain high percentage. They're funded by pharma. Yes, there is a strong correlation between the patient groups that use the most inflammatory language also receiving the majority of their funds from pharmaceutical companies. It's kind of like a Occam's razor. You know what I mean? Like follow the dollar. So obviously pharma fears these qualities. I mean, otherwise, why would they put this much effort into a strategy to invalidate them? What's really interesting is that many of the companies that fund these patient groups themselves use the quality. If you do a literature review, and this is actually something my colleague Jen Chen and I just published on in Health Affairs blog a few months ago, if you look at the companies that give money to these groups, many of them also sponsor studies that use qualies to demonstrate the value of their products. What's interesting about those is, of course, the assumptions that go into the models that estimate those qualies. So it's being used, the quality is being used by manufacturers themselves. They know the value of it. They know that it is a very compelling argument to use it. It's a very important metric. It's just that they like to also control that narrative because groups like ICER and others, uh, this is also, of course, happening outside of the U.S. and the U.K., will use that metric to call out that difference between how much the additional improvement is valued versus how much is being asked. So ICER is the organization that tends to put together the quality assessments and they do their thing and come up with this drug is worth 100 grand per quality, right? If I am a pharma manufacturer, was I part of that conversation or do I swoop in on the back end and disagree with the whole thing? Like, how does this wind up with one number that everybody agrees on? ICER, you know, it's an independent organization. It actually doesn't represent any specific payer nor any specific stakeholder. I think their role in the U.S. conversation about drug pricing right now is simply to put a benchmark there. That's what they're really doing. Now, their input process, as far as I can see, is designed to get input from all stakeholders. That includes patient groups, it includes the manufacturers. I know there are some manufacturers that work very closely with ICER, so that it's well-informed from their perspective as well. And then there's some who don't want to participate in the process. There's choice there on the part of manufacturers. These are not processes in which the manufacturer has no control. You had mentioned something earlier I think was important that, you know, this can help if you're a patient benchmark two different drugs against each other. Like, do I take this one or do I take that one? Or how much improvement will I really see? You know, especially if there's a huge, you know, maybe there's a huge out-of-pocket cost and I really want to know, is it worth it to me to take? Like, I can definitely use these qualities to figure out what's this drug going to do for me. But it doesn't sound like that, you know, if you've got payers in this country that anybody's necessarily saying, oh, we're only going to pay up to the quality. So it's a useful tool in order to evaluate products, but it, it is not linked to, it's a little bit decoupled, it sounds like, from what a payer is going to pay in this country, just especially given market dynamics. Exactly. You know, in this country, payers can certainly take it as part of the what's known as pharmacy and therapeutics committee deliberations. The P&T committee can consider it. At the end of the day, you know, the ideal here is, is simply to be able to quantify this is what we're going to pay for this additional benefit that we're going to provide for patients. 
for drugs where there's a really good payoff, you really want to be able to offer that, right? You really want to be able to say, I don't want to put access restrictions on this that are financially motivated. That's sort of the ambition. And I think other countries do this better in the sense that they will negotiate with the manufacturer upfront on the price so that that value-based price then reflects what society is willing to pay, but also reflects that patients are going to get access to it. And I think in the U.S., one of the big concerns here and one of the big tensions is that when that price is disjointed from the willingness to pay threshold for the quality, we really end up in a position where you know patients who would really benefit from the drug might not get access as quickly or, as, as, or at all. And then that's because the drug is priced too high. So some insurer is denying access. So you've got 100 people that need the drug and 80 people are getting it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, or they're getting it late. The idea here is if you're going to provide this drug and it gives you a better outcome, for example, the earlier you use it, it would be a terrible tragedy to delay that, right? Because if quality improvements come from early intervention, then it would be to the patient's benefit to get this drug sooner rather than later. You know, in the U.S. system, I think one of the problems is that we aren't, you know, we don't make the other end of that arrangement happen. When you meet that price, patients should be getting access to that product. So it can work both ways. I mean, on on one way, the payer could be like, you know, in the absence of a quality, that sounds too expensive, so I'm not going to pay for it when it might be worth it, right? So in that case, it's a good drug and it's not getting paid for. But then on the other hand, you might have a drug that's way too expensive and payers are paying for it. And then we as a society lose effectively. And there's nothing saying that the quality should be the only metric that's involved in making a decision about coverage for a drug. But I do think it's a metric that shouldn't be discarded over concerns that are, you know, not necessarily well-founded and could be resolved through a more informed conversation about the price of drugs in the U.S. Yeah, because a lot of what these patient groups are saying is that someone is putting a number on their life. Like, that's the big catchphrase. You know, I can understand the emotional component of that. And it's a bit unfair to put patients in that position. If I were in that position, I don't know what I would say. I didn't wake up sick saying I would like to become a health economist, you know. I don't think that if I woke up life-threatening condition tomorrow, that would be the top of mind. So I think it's a pretty unfair thing to sort of put patients in this position. I think the way in which we buy and pay for drugs in which we incentivize their prices should much better align to those conditions I just outlined. So basically making it so that it's affordable to give access to the patients to get them, but then really give them that access. That's the ambition in this. And so I, I really do hope that in the conversation with these patient groups, we get to a better place where we can have that conversation. It includes the quality, maybe it includes other things as well, but it's on the basis of a much more level playing field. Yeah, because I mean, I've seen some of these outcries and it's, I mean, it's it's heart-wrenching. You know, it's some dad and his kid has some rare disease and he's, you know, he's he's, he's talking about how his, his kid can't get this drug because of these qualities. I mean, I mean, it's kind of this very emotional plea, but I can see from what you're saying there, you're right. Like, why is that dad being put in that position? Who got that dad roped into this? And what's the intent there? You know, at the end of the day, what I, I don't want to focus so much on the negative of it. I think there's a positive here too, which is that there are significant advances, especially in the last couple of years, where we are seeing a lot more treatments for rare disease that even at very high prices meet our willingness to pay threshold. And My ideal here would, of course, be that we could provide the best care possible for everyone. 
And that can really only happen once we deal with the fact that it is expensive to bring drugs to market. Manufacturers do need to cover their costs once they bring them to market. That's the idea. But at the same time, there's a very human element here and we should be optimizing that human element. We should be giving people access to product. I think we need to get to a better place where we can Either that negotiated comes to a fair and value-based price. If that means that manufacturers can't produce the product for a fair price, then we need to talk about that. But those are very different conversations from we should just not be using the quality, which I think takes us in the wrong direction. Continuous improvement. If there's valuable insight that can be gained here and we can actually compare drugs, as you said, apples to apples and figure out which ones are really valuable and which ones really aren't. I mean, that would be an important metric benchmark to have. And I want to highlight this. I mean, you know, I don't want to kill the uh, listeners with numbers, but I, I mean, if you look at just, and I'm, I'm going to reference to some of ICER's recent reports, they valued Luxterna 425000 for, you know, a one-time treatment. That was purely based on improvements in quality of life or can be comes in at 80,000 per year as a, you know, basically a maintenance therapy. And those are both quality of life improvements primarily. And then you have drugs like Yascarta that are really improved life expectancy in patients with cancer that comes in at a value of 373,000 for one treatment. So we can put numbers on that. We can say, all right, based on what we see as the improvements and based on what we see as the costs of the drug, plus the cost offsets of the drug, this is how much, you know, these things are worth. The challenge is when the price is so much higher than those benchmarks. Yeah, and I mean, that's just a whole separate issue in this country as far as pricing of pharmaceuticals. It is, but I mean, the thing with the quality and what it's really good at is it tells us the number, right? It tells us how much more we have to pay for that additional quality because this is not a situation where you're going to necessarily pay less. You're actually saying, okay, I'm going to commit to paying more. And so you can do that a couple of different ways, right? You can either increase your budget. So you just say, okay, I'm just going to charge more in premiums for health insurance, or you can do that by taking money away from something else. You know, that trade-off is a hard one to make because what are you going to take money away from? And so the quality tells us how to think about, you know, where you're going to be best able to reallocate funds or how to increase funds essentially to pay for these things, what your best option is. So if I'm an employer, let's say I'm a self-insured employer, and I see it apparently is quite a process. So not every category has qualities, you know, assigned to it, but there's enough that do, right? So if I want to use these qualities in a really meaningful way in the math that I'm doing to determine, you know, maybe what drugs I'm contemplating or like how I'm thinking about my formulary as a whole or how would you, I mean, these are non-clinicians. How do I use this tool? You know, most employers aren't making their own decisions. They, they'll, they'll look to work with um, the health plan to structure their, their coverage. And so what I would look for is one that tries to best strike the balance between ensuring that drugs that have a really good cost per quality get access, that, there is, that there's no barriers there, that it's low copay and good, good coverage, not a ton of prior authorization if the treatment fits those criteria. But then, you know, treats drugs where it's a very high cost per quality with a little bit more discretion and tries to do it in such a way as, you know, to identify the patients who would benefit most from treatment and get them those treatments quickly, but not necessarily give full on access. And I I get that that is the exact opposite of what I was saying earlier, which is that patients should get access when something works. And the reality is this is what happens when you end up in a situation where it costs more than, than is reasonable to pay or more than society has expressed willingness to pay for. And that's the trade-off you're going to have to make essentially is 
How do you navigate getting those patients who would benefit the most this product in a timely and efficient way, while also not making sure that those who would benefit less don't get it? And I think if you move to value-based pricing generally, where you do align those numbers with the willingness to pay threshold better, then you're not having that trade-off in that calculation. Yeah, so it sounds like if I'm an employer, then the best way to use this is to just kind of do like a double check of my health plan, you know, just if are the high quality products easy to get and reimbursed and then the low quality products, like where are they on the formulary? You know, so it's more of just like a macro kind of assessment. What is the conversation between a health plan, you know, like a P&T committee, pharmacy and therapeutics committee look like with a manufacturer when it's clear that the price is different, say, from the quality? So I wish I were a fly on the wall for some of these conversations. I don't know what the conversation is like. I'm not in them. From what I understand about them, I think, you know, there's the attempt to negotiate typically a net price discount. So, you know, you end up looking for a discount or a rebate on the price of the drug to maybe more closely align it to that value. That's, I think, easier to do when there's other treatment options out there. And that's sort of true of anything with pharmaceutical products in the U.S. right now is is the there's more net price competition when there's more treatment alternatives. That being said, in some instances, the pharmacy and therapeutics committee and those also the committees, usually the committee that also negotiates price is a bit separate from the P&T committee in, in most of the health plan sort of corporate structure. But either way, I think what it come, boils down to is, you know, a net price negotiation where there is a misalignment potentially. If the circumstances allow for it, it needs to be said that many health plans are committed to covering anything covered by the FDA in order to make themselves more attractive to employers. And then there are certainly health plans that are legally obligated to cover certain things. So this is what happens a lot with Medicare and Medicaid, where the obligation is you know, by law that they have to cover FDA-approved products. So there are certain ways in which that then makes it very difficult to negotiate net price concessions. So there's been a bunch of talk lately about how Medicaid can do value-based pricing, or there's it's a little bit more complicated than that. But there seems to be a push towards, or it seems like there's been some encouragement from CMS to contemplate value-based pricing from for drugs. How does that fit in here with qualities? Like, do you use quality as a basis for a value-based pricing scheme? You can. This is where it gets tricky. When you think about value-based pricing, that's, I think, a good benchmark to have. In the case of the Medicaid value-based approaches, I think more often than not, those are known what's value-based contracts that they're trying to encourage, which are really outcomes-based contracts. They don't necessarily have a net effect on the price unless patients patients are are not achieving the desired outcome, in which case, you know, there's a supplemental rebate involved essentially is, is what it boils down to. That's my understanding of those contracts. Now, in an ideal world, of course, we would be talking about the same thing we just said, which is like when the the price gets to a value-based point, just patients are going to get access to it. So why do you do this, Anna? <laughs> like this is, obviously this is a, a big topic and it's, were you a, a little girl in second grade scratching your head and saying, I want to get into qualies when I'm yeah, growing right? up? <laughs> yeah, that's not how it happened. There's a whole lingo in this space that is sort of accepted and a knowledge base that sort of exists when you have a payer in the room and a manufacturer in the room having a conversation about a topic that they understand deeply. And what I've noticed with the advent of more patient involvement in the process is that 
It injects a lot of emotion, which is merits emotion, right? Uh, Patients should be getting good treatment. But at the same time, it doesn't do it on a level playing field because they don't necessarily have that depth of experience and understanding of all of the levers that are involved in getting those coverage decisions and making those pricing decisions. And so part of the reason I pivoted into policy about four years ago was because I felt like there was just a lack of ethics in the space and and sort of a, a, a need to call more public attention to the fact that there is something happening here that really deserves attention and a national discussion. So I did not wake up one day saying I wanted to become a health economist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think many do. But Anna, if someone's interested in learning more about the work that you are doing over at the pricing lab at MSK, Memorial Sloan Kettering, where can they go? The best way to find us is to simply look for our website, which is drugpricinglab.org. And you can find all about us there. The work that we do, our funders, which include Arnold Ventures and Kaiser Permanente. And Accountant Black, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.